other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean just what they say. The brave men of the Green Beret. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. My next guest is not only someone I admire greatly, but he also destroys the preconceived notion that so many of us have about the accuracy of cliches. You see, the old cliche goes something along the lines of because there's certain thinking that uh, when it comes to people that are good fighters, they're not necessarily the brightest bulbs in the drawer or whatever bulbs come in because uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor is the definition of a warrior scholar. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel. He is a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He's an author. He's a senior fellow at the American Conservative. Somewhere along the line, he managed to find the time to go and get a Ph.D. He's been an advisor to military officers and military officials all over the world, and he has been kind enough to not only share his wisdom with us over the years, but he's been one of the few military voices that's respected who is willing to sing a different tune from what those in the military-industrial complex would sing, especially when it comes to foreign policy. Colonel, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Sure, Frank. Uh, Let me begin with the issue that's on everybody's mind this week, which is the issue of this uh, Chinese spy balloon. Uh, There seems to be pretty broad consensus that it was the right thing to do to shoot down this balloon. Uh, Do you share that view, that this was the right move? (laughs) Uh, I I think it's uh, sort of uh, tragic and pathetic in many ways. The Chinese have 300 satellites that orbit the planet. Of those, almost a third have military application. And most of these military satellites are also involved in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And, of course, they have their own global positioning system, just as we do, uh, and just, by the way, as the Russians do, that guide their precision munitions and missiles and rockets. Uh, The notion that the Chinese would use a balloon that, quite frankly, is too small to carry a significant payload in order to find out about something inside the United States is ludicrous. Right now, they can do with their satellites exactly what Paris can do. They can read the names on gravestones. Uh, They can actually uh, tune in and listen to people's private meetings and boardrooms and bedrooms. So there's no real requirement for them to use something like a weather balloon masquerading as some sort of spy capability. It's just, it's just silly. And I think that this is the sort of thing that has been 
developed as a distraction from reality. I mean, it sounds like, you, you know, there was President Trump who said the balloon should have been shot down immediately, and he was echoed by a lot of leading Republican voices on national security. And then there's President Biden and the Democrats that say, yeah, it was over our airspace. We want to shoot it down, but we want to wait till it's over the water and uh, the debris can't go and uh, hurt anybody or anything. It sounds like you don't think maybe, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like maybe it wasn't worth shooting down at all. Well, you've uh, heard of the Russia hoax. This is kind of the Republican version uh, of a China hoax. Mm. No, the balloon's irrelevant. Uh, and those weather balloons are all over the world, used by many, many countries. And they're involved in atmospheric sampling. They're involved in tracking winds, currents, all sorts of things. But they're not a threat. And again, anything <clears throat> of any real significance that is of interest to the Chinese they have the capability to collect that information without relying on a silly balloon. And there's something else to this. Why aren't people upset about the open border? I mean, if you're looking for a large intelli- uh, Chinese intelligence operation, all you have to do is look at the Mexico City. I mean, they have stations in the Caribbean, stations in Africa, and many places, but <clears throat> the Chinese are ideally positioned in Mexico <clears throat> to monitor virtually anything that happens in the United States. And Since we have an open border, they've sent thousands of Chinese citizens over the border. Uh, We don't know anything about them. We don't know where they are. Uh, We just let them in. And I'd be much more concerned about those people, uh, where they are operating, where they live. Are they near nuclear power stations? Are they near military installations? And by the way, what are their connections to the drug cartels? Because we know the drug cartels are plugged into global finance. they, they use the Mexican government as a legitimate facade in order to effectively launder their money, reinvest it, repurpose it. The Chinese have a role in that. Uh, why are we not concerned about those things? Instead, for some, for some particular reason, we're exercised over this ridiculous weather balloon. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's difficult to argue with you when you put it that way, sir. Talking with Colonel Douglas McGregor, a retired U.S. Army colonel, former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, uh, a man who was nominated uh, by President Trump to be the ambassador to Germany. <clears throat> uh, colonel, given what you said, that this balloon was not a national security threat, and that's something that the Pentagon has said, it's something that the uh, president, uh, that uh, the Biden administration has said, it's not something that the Republicans are disputing. Was it the right move for Secretary of State Tony Blinken to cancel the talks with with China? He was scheduled to go to Beijing to have some talks with the Chinese at a time when tensions are very, very high between both countries. Was it the right move to scrap those talks? Well, probably not. But again, I'm not sure the Chinese were particularly interested in anything that Mr. Blinken has to say. His previous meetings have been an utter disaster because he, like everyone else in the administration, and frankly, like most people in Washington, have this view of their moral supremacy that places them in a position of judgment over everyone else. And so you open your discussions with the Chinese or the Russians or anybody else by immediately castigating them and defaming them and uh, showing complete ignorance and understanding of their interests, let alone their country's culture and so forth. So I'm not sure Blinken would have done anything of value in any case. Uh, We might even be better off if he stayed home. 
What do you see at this point, given sort of the unique codependence that China and the United States have on one another, but the escalating tensions on the other side of the ledger, what do you see as the future, short-term and long-term, of U.S.-Sino relations? Where are we heading with this relationship with China? Well, in the near term, people need to understand that when Mr. Xi wakes up every morning, the first thing on his mind is not the United States or anything that we're doing. Uh, Mr. Xi is effectively the contemporary equivalent of a Chinese emperor. And everybody keeps talking about the Communist Party of China. Well, there are no communists in China. They went away 30 years ago. This is just a ruling elite. It continues to refer to itself as the Communist Party, but there have been discussions in that country for the last 10 years about changing the name to the Confucian Party. Mm. Because effectively, that's what China is. It's a Confucian civilization and state. Mr. Xi has been appointed emperor for all intents and purposes because there's great fear of internal problems in China, bringing the government down, essentially destroying stability. We forget that there are probably three or four versions of the United States in relative size and economic influence that that exist inside China. Holding that country together, 1.4 billion is the number one priority every day. And that means that you've got to protect the population, close, uh, support, sustain, feed the population, uh, shelter the population. Mm -hmm. That's an enormous challenge. That's number one. When you look at their military capabilities, those have been developed largely to prevent others from interfering with them. Uh, The Chinese aren't massing armies on anybody's borders. They're not interested in invading anybody's territory. Uh, We call them predatory uh, financiers and, uh, and economic predators and so forth. Well, that's what we are. <laughs> We've been that for, for over 100 years or more. Uh, so I think that's a lot of nonsense. But the problem for us right now <clears throat> is that the Chinese, the Russians, together with all the BRICS and increasingly large numbers of countries in the world, including India, uh, are looking at ways to de-dollarize, mm. effectively to stop using the global reserve currency. And that's a very dangerous development. I wouldn't expect that to change dramatically overnight, but that's a very dangerous signal because our reserve currency really confers enormous power and influence on us. And unfortunately, we've abused that. We've bullied other countries. We've dictated to countries in Latin America and in Africa what crops they will grow and what they will not grow. Uh, We have threatened people with the use of our financial system who, for some reason or another, are trading with people we don't like. And and this is finally coming home to roost. And unfortunately, the, the crisis with Ukraine and Russia has simply thrown all of this into sharp relief. So our position in the world is weakened dramatically over the last 12 months, and I think we're going to see it weaken more and more in the months ahead because we are, we are suddenly seeing as this malignant force in the world that is responsible for corruption and violence. We're no longer viewed as this mag- magnanimous engine of prosperity, which is what we once were. Mm. 
Uh, it's a sad situation uh, if that's the case. Uh, wh- I want to pick your brain a little bit on the Russia-Ukraine situation, but just one last question on the Chinese front. Uh, one, of, one of the things that a lot of people have raised is the prospect of a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And every time this is brought up with President Biden, he seems to say one thing and the officials within his administration say quite another. And they say, oh, that's not what President Biden meant. And then he keeps saying uh, that very same thing. How should the United States react if there is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? We should stay completely out of it. First of all, there are two political parties on Taiwan. Historically, one is pro-Japanese. That happens to be the party that is currently in power but is not going to last much longer. That is the party that we tend to support because they're the ones that have talked about independence. There's the other KMT, which is Chiang Kai-shek's old party, and they are very much for unification with China. However, they want unification on terms that allow Taiwan to continue to do business and thrive. And the Chinese in Beijing have made it very clear that they're willing to talk about that and come to some sort of arrangement. Mm. Uh, I think after the events of the last 12 months, there's a very high probability that the KMT will come to power. And you could actually see uh, the government, in fact, hold a referendum and vote itself into China. People in the United States don't understand what is going on over there. They have this utterly ridiculous picture of, you know, millions of Chinese troops and aircraft and right. ships just waiting to charge across. That's absurd. The last thing China wants in Asia is a war. No one in Asia, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, take your pick. No one in Asia is talking about a war. The only people in Asia who talk about a war are Americans. That's the problem. It is interesting the way that works. Uh, I know, obviously, you were very fond of President Trump. He seemed to be pretty fond of you. Obviously, I alluded to the fact that not only were you a senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense in his administration, but he also uh, attempted to make you the ambassador to Germany. There was an article in Politico this week. Headline, Trump's 24 game plan, be the dove among Hawks. And then it talks about how with two of his former top foreign policy aides potentially jumping into the race, Trump's team is making early moves to define the debate. And essentially what this Politico article is saying is that with Mike Pompeo potentially in the race and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and maybe even John Bolton, that uh, Donald Trump is going to position himself as the as the peace candidate. Do you think that's likely and do you think that'll be effective in a Republican primary? Well, keep in mind that all of the people that you mentioned, except Donald Trump, are effectively indistinguishable from the people in the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. They're part of the uh, bipartisan swamp. Sometimes we call it the uniparty. Uh, They may pretend to demonstrate some sort of interest in the American people, its national identity, the rule of law, the security of its borders, its interests, the repatriation of industries. But in truth, They're not interested. They're owned and operated by donors. Everything in Washington is owned and operated by donors. What we usually say about these kinds of people in Ukraine and Russia is we call them oligarchs. Well, that's what we're that's what owns Washington, D.C. Ralph Nader years ago told everybody that Washington was occupied territory. He's right. Only now it's occupied not just by 
corporate interests and foreign lobbies. It's occupied by oligarchs who have bought everything up. So Donald Trump is the only one that you mentioned who's not owned by the oligarchy. He's an independent actor, and he also knows something else. The last thing the American people need at this point in our history is a war. Eisenhower said it very well. The American people deserve solvency and security, both of them. We should be able to have both. We are not solvent. Uh, Our economy is not strong. The underlying fundamentals are terrible. And Donald Trump knew that when he became president. He was working tirelessly to rectify that situation. But there was only so much that he could do because he was in enemy territory. He had no support from anybody. Everybody was opposed to him because he was disrupting the money flows. Well, he's still an outsider, and he's the only one who understands that we don't need any more wars anywhere, least of all against powers like China and Russia who can destroy us. Does President Trump, though, bear some responsibility for appointing all of the people that I just mentioned, Pompeo, Haley, Bolton, Pence, etc.? Yes, he does. But we have to keep something in in mind that uh, Donald Trump was someone who came to Washington and came to the office with almost no practical political experience and no real understanding of how dramatically things had changed in Washington. I mean, Donald Trump grew up in the 50s, just as I did, and and the early 60s. And I remember at one point talking to to him and, you know, we talked about what were the kinds of things you used to watch or read and so forth. And it's the same stuff. And there was a, there was a program I loved as a young boy in the 1950s. It was called The Men of West Point. I mean, you can still go onto YouTube and find some episodes. What a what a marvelous, marvelous uh, program that was. I loved it. And all I wanted to do was to go to West Point. I wanted to be one of those West Point cadets. <laughs> and that was a different world. It was disciplined. It was all male. People had no qualms about who and what they were. There were no discussions about transgender. There were no discussions about are you really an American or are you a hyphenated something else? It was a very different world. And that world changed. And when he got to Washington, he mistook large numbers of generals who walked around with silver stars on their shoulders for George Patton, <laughs> uh, Ike Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur. These people were nothing compared to those individuals, and they had not risen Uh, as a result of any battlefield performance or any substantive contribution. They were bureaucrats in uniform who learned how to advance on the basis of how well they made their bosses happy. And uh, they're very politicized. And and it took him a long time to come to terms with the facade is there, but there's nothing behind it. Uh, And, And that's what happened. Let's talk Ukraine. You know, it's funny when Ukraine is covered in the Western media, it seems like there are two directly contradictory messages which are hammered home. The first being Ukraine is winning the war. Ukraine is doing better than expected. Ukraine has a different victory every day. Putin's running scared. The (laughs) Russians are running scared. And then almost in the next breath, you hear, oh, but Ukraine needs this. Uh, They first they need uh, defensive weapons. 
weapons. Then they need $100 billion in American funding. Then they need tanks. Then they need fighter jets. And I must be the only one sitting there scratching my head and saying, well, wait a minute. Why are we told on the one hand that Ukraine is winning this war and on the other that it's absolutely essential that we send all this armament and treasure from the American taxpayer at a time when Americans can't even get milk or insulin over to the Ukrainians? Based on your perspective and what you're seeing, how is the war in Ukraine actually going? Well, Frank, uh, on 24 February of last year, when the Russians intervened in southeastern and eastern Ukraine, they went in with a relatively small force. Uh, They had instructions not to destroy property and to avoid unnecessary casualties. And they thought that they were finally signaling after many after really two decades of trying to tell people that they would not tolerate a NATO presence on their border, that they were serious and that they wanted equal rights before the law for Russians inside Ukraine who were being treated abominably and still are. Uh, And they wanted help from the United States and Europe to address these issues. Well, they thought when they went in, well, well, we'll signal our seriousness. We'll show them how serious we are. And we concluded, look at the Russians. They're weak. There was no shock at all. They didn't have massive air and missile attacks to destroy everything in sight. They did not overrun the place with armor. They, they've moved very cautiously in small penny packets. The Russians are incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They're idiots. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say those things about the Russians and then turn around and say the Russians pose a serious threat to Europe and are armed to the teeth to invade Europe. It's the same sort of nonsense. There were no Ukrainian victories. Ukrainians were losing from the day the Russians entered. The Ukrainians have been losing disproportionately to the Russians because of superior firepower on the Russian side. Now, today, there are roughly 700,000 Russian troops surrounding Ukraine, either in the south, in parts of it, or in the north, in Belarusia. Of that number, about 500,000. 550,000 are prepared to enter Ukraine. And of that number, about 300,000 are combat troops, as I was. Those are the people that actually go in and at point-blank range kill the enemy. That force is ready. It's going to go in. And when it does, it's going to annihilate what's left of the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army has been bled to death. They're down about 190,000 effectives. Oh, sure, they've got 200,000, 300,000 other functionaries running around in uniform, but they're not trained. And they're losing people every day. The most recent uh, count I saw was uh, something in the neighborhood of uh, 1,900 casualties a day, 6,000 dead in the month of January, or perhaps 6,500. They weren't sure. Ukrainians have taken horrendous casualties. The Russians have not. And that's because the Russians can fire 60,000 artillery rounds rockets and missiles every day, and the Ukrainians can barely manage to fire fifteen to 20,000 back. In fact, right now I'm being told it's dropped down to about 10,000. 75% of all the Ukrainian casualties are from strikes, from artillery, air, rockets, and missiles. This thing is over, and it's going to be ugly because what's going to happen is we're going to see a cleanup And there's no amount of equipment that we can send that's going to change anything. 
And the 10, 20, 30,000 foreigners in Ukrainian uniform are not going to make a difference. They, too, are going to be killed in what's coming. Uh, we're even seeing in especially the British media people and, and the German media as well, a high level current and former defense and uh, foreign policy officials saying that they should even entertain the prospect of boots on the ground, NATO boots on the ground to help Ukraine in this conflict against Russia. Do you see a realistic possibility that this could lead to a nuclear uh, conflict with the United States and Russia? No. Uh, The Russians have made it very clear that unless they are attacked with a nuclear weapon, they will not use nuclear weapons. We understand the consequences for the use of a nuclear weapon. We do not enjoy superiority in the nuclear arsenal over the Russians. We're not going to do that. So there will be no nuclear exchange. As far as the officers talking about boots on the ground, I'm, I, you're shocking me because the German generals that I know, retired and active, have all said absolutely not out of the question. The Germans have ammunition for two days of warfare. The notion of, of going there and fighting is absurd. There are even Polish generals active and retired who privately have said the same thing. But the only ones that I'm aware of who, who are on the lunatic fringe to talk about this are, of course, are, of course the British And the British Army now is substantially smaller than the Marine Corps. I think it's probably 70,000 troops. Uh, They have almost no ammunition for more than a day or two. They have very little uh, substantial armor, artillery. They're not prepared to deal with any of this. So I guess that's why the British are talking about it, because I suppose they figure they're far enough away. Nobody will ever expect them to show up anyway. (laughs) The French absolutely said this is absurd. A French general that I served with is a good friend. He said, Douglas, the only thing the French army is prepared to do is go on safari in North Africa. All of these armies have been structured for this low-intensity conflict nonsense. So you don't have armies that are ready to fight on the scale that we're seeing in Ukraine. And remember that we trained the Ukrainians, we organized them, we equipped them, we gave them the best we had, and what's happened to them? They've been smashed. So much for Russian weakness. We're talking with uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired Army colonel, also the author of the book Margin of Victory, Five Battles That uh, Changed the Face of Modern War. It's available on Amazon. Uh, Colonel, a lot of folks will uh, say that, and look, I I think obviously we know each other long enough that you know that I am sort of coming from the same place that you are on this, albeit without your expertise and without your experience. But a lot of, just to play devil's advocate, a lot of folks are saying that the rush that this invasion of Ukraine led to Finland and Sweden seeking to join NATO and leading to even greater NATO. NATO expansion is evidence of the fact that the NATO alliance works, that Russia would not dare attack a NATO country. And it makes sense uh, because countries are trying to be a part of NATO so that they're not the next target that's eaten by Russia. Is that sound reasoning? Well, Russia never had any interest in attacking NATO anyway. I mean, that was very clear to me when I was in Moscow in 2001. And uh, it was clear to me all through the 90s when I worked with the Russians. And it was clear to me in the in the few instances in which I interacted with them over the last 20 years. Uh, there was no interest. And frankly, they hadn't spent any money uh, on the army. I mean, frankly, 
we've already given the Ukraine Ukrainians more equipment and infused them with more cash than is spent on the Russian army in a year. So that that was always complete and utter nonsense. As far as the Swedes and the uh, Finns are concerned, I think the elites there are, are part of this globalist neocon cabal that uh, meets routinely in the World Economic Forum to transform the world into some sort of society of internationalists that they dream of. Uh, these people are out of touch with reality. There was never any danger to Finland. And the Finns, once you once you dig down deeper in Finland and in Sweden, you begin to find people that are saying, wait a minute, is this really necessary? What what does this mean? And most of them have figured out it means they're going to have to spend a lot of money on defense, which they haven't had to spend in the past. Uh, I think the opposite is the case. If you go back to this conference that was just held on the 20th of January at Ramstein in Germany, where they had representatives from dozens of nations, all the NATO states, and Austin, the Secretary of Defense, said point blank to them, look, the time's running out. Our window of opportunity is closing. We've got to help these people. We've got to get this stuff to them, or it's going to be too late. And you know what kind of response they got? It was terrible. People said, oh, yes, we'll send this, we'll send that. What are we finding out right now? The tanks aren't showing up. Mm -hmm. The equipment's not showing up. People in the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia said, wait a minute. You know, the Ukrainians are probably going to be annihilated. What does that leave us? What kind of artillery and, and tanks and aircraft do we have? Everybody's backing off because this thing is going nowhere. And ultimately, I think we're going to see NATO go out of business. I think uh, Germany is going to is going to walk out of the camp. It's going to take another six, 12 months before they sort themselves out. But the Germans are not interested in going to war with Russia. They correctly judged there was no threat from Russia, which is why they were taking the uh, natural gas that they were getting from the Russians and, and using it to great success because it was cheap, it was available, it was quick. And it was fueling the German scientific industrial base, which is the real engine of prosperity in Europe. Uh, I think if anybody thinks that, that uh, NATO is in good shape, they're delusional. But then again, I don't blame them because they're not getting the truth through the media. I mean, the lies that pour out of the mouths of the people in the mainstream media in the West are astonishing. It's just it's beyond belief when you ask them, well, what do you know about Ukraine? What do you know about what was going on in that country? What's been happening there for the last decade? Nobody knows. Right. Nobody knows that we installed a government there. Nobody knows that we've manipulated that place and turned it into a platform for attack against Russia. And by the way, you know, they talk about how horrible Russia is. If you look at the quote unquote Zelensky regime, it compares favorably with Stalin. Uh, the Russians are far more democratic in treating their own people and others infinitely better than Zelensky and his henchmen. Colonel, but there's I, no knowledge of that here. I, uh, that's for sure. I, I'm already out of time, but I have to ask you two final questions very quickly. One is it was reported this week that the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett indicated that uh, both Putin and Zelensky were willing at the beginning of this conflict to try and come up with a negotiated settlement. But according to the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister, he said that NATO decided that it was necessary to continue to smash Putin and not negotiate. Why would NATO take that tact if the two uh, countries in conflict with one another were willing to come up with a negotiated settlement? 
Uh, first of all, Naftali Bennett is telling the truth, except for one point. NATO is irrelevant. Washington makes the decisions. Washington treats the countries of Western Europe and Eastern Europe essentially as vassal states. They don't pay any attention to what those people say or what those people want. Never have. Everything is decided in Washington. And uh, we shouldn't be terribly surprised. Mr. Macron is somebody that was selected and groomed and installed in office, thanks for the most part, to George Soros. George Soros is frequently mentioned as the shadow national security advisor in the White House these days. And Mr. Zelensky also owes a great deal to George Soros, along with other oligarchs, for his position. So I think I think there's something else happening here. We're talking about a class of bureaucrats and politicians who share the same sort of attitudes. But it's really Washington, D.C. And whoever is behind President Biden. And again, I, I urge people to go back and look at the oligarchs that stand behind his White House and his party. Those are the people driving this this train. Those are the people that are forcing this war. The average American doesn't know anything about it. And, and frankly, why should he or her? They don't care about this sort of thing. So why is this happening? And it's tragic. It really is, because here are two people, two groups of people, Ukrainians and Russians, or whatever their differences are. They didn't have to go to war. And Ukraine is destroyed. The nation is finished. And that that burden rests firmly on our shoulders. We we drove this into existence. It's horrible. It's a it's an atrocity. Uh, that's for sure. A lot of lives lost, a lot of people forced to flee their homes, and uh, you wonder what it was all for. Final question, sir. Whenever I uh, say something different from what the conventional foreign policy wisdom in the country is right now on the uh, on the Russian front and say uh, we should not give a blank check to Zelensky and the Ukrainians to fight back against Putin, immediately uh, the comparisons begin of... Uh, of Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler, and of people like me, people like you, to Neville Chamberlain. Now, you don't sound like Chamberlain to me, but why is that analogy? Because I'm sh- I'm trying to preempt the callers as they call in about a, in about a minute. Uh, why is that analogy flawed? Putin as Hitler, Doug McGregor as Chamberlain. Well, this is the uh, popular narrative that was spun out on, in every intervention. And you have to look at the people their intellectual backgrounds, their their origins. Who who are these individuals that turn Saddam Hussein into Adolf Hitler? Who turn anybody that they don't particularly care for into Hitler? Who are these people that are trying to tell everybody it's 1936 again and we have to become active in the world to prevent all these terrible things from happening? Ask yourself that question. Who are these individuals? Bolton is certainly one of them. But there are large numbers of them that live here in Washington, and they absolutely cling to this narrative because this has been the way Americans have been misled. I mean, if you tell Americans, if we don't do something right now, within six weeks, uh, we could have a Pearl Harbor. We have to attack China right now because if we don't, we could have another Pearl Harbor. You're going to get a response out of the American people. It's understandable. That's an emotional thing. But it's also a huge lie. You have the same thing going on with Putin and anybody else they don't like. Uh, but Americans have got to grow up and they have to understand that we don't live in the 1930s. There is no National Socialist Movement. 
and frankly, communism, except for this country, where I think we have a revival going on in some ways, is largely dead. Uh, Putin is not a revanchist communist trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. He was he's always accused of saying it was a great tragedy when it fell apart. Actually, what he said was anybody who wasn't sad when it fell apart has no heart. Anybody that wants to bring it back has no brain. That's Putin. Colonel, we're going to have to. We're not dealing with any of that that sort of nonsense. People have just got to sober up, think for themselves and ask the hard questions. What is at stake for the Americans in Ukraine? We're going to have to end it there. Uh, Colonel, thank you so much as always. It's always a treat. Thanks for staying up late with us. Sure. Thank you. If if you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Colonel Douglas McGregor, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.